Before we uh, dive into our teaching time this morning, let me also give you an update on home groups. Uh, This is something that affects most of the people who consider Liberty Church to be uh, their home church. Um, Over the summer, over the course of these last several months, in conversations with the different leaders of our home groups, uh, there were a few things that became evident. So I'll share a couple of those with you. One, um, we have a really gifted, uh, willing, servant-hearted group of people that lead here at Liberty Church. So we were, I was blessed and encouraged in, in that this summer. Uh, two, that we've never as a church really had a good process for identifying and developing new leaders for home groups. Uh, that's something we've just been weak in as a church since we've, since we've existed, uh, and we need to, to grow in that. Number three, um, that though we have seen some really good things happen uh, through home groups these past five or so years, we've also really struggled to, to clearly define their purpose and what really precisely it is that we're trying to do uh, through, through home groups here. And so fourth, related to that, that though in some cases uh, home groups have really led to good relational connections, they haven't really translated into what I would call effective discipleship relationships uh, where people are really rooted in the gospel more and more, uh, formed in their relationship with Christ more and more. And it hasn't happened in the, the kind of broad and intentional way that really, as leaders, we hope to see happen um, here at, at Liberty. So with all of that in our minds from these summer discussions, the elders decided about a, couple, about a week or two ago now that this fall uh, seems to be a really important time for something I'm going to call a home group sabbatical. Um, and here's where, where this is coming from. Uh, in Exodus chapter 23, Leviticus chapter 25, God commands the Israelites that as they enter the promised land, that they are to work the land really hard for six years, and then every seventh year to let the ground lie fallow, to give the land a year of sabbatical rest. Uh, and apart from mirroring the, the work and rest rhythms that God has woven into creation, work six days, rest one, beyond that, this was actually the, the wisest approach uh, just from an agricultural standpoint. By, by pushing the, the land seven years without rest, just constant nonstop, you actually cumulatively would, would become less fruitful. The land would become less fruitful than by working the land hard for six years and then taking this sabbatical year. That, that year off allowed for a replenished and renewed soil. So after taking stock uh, of where we're at, uh, the elders and I really are convinced that we need a, at least six months uh, to let the figurative ground of home groups lie fallow. Uh, and here's, here's where we come at this from. Life and ministry uh, is a marathon. Uh, it's not a sprint. And so with a long view, we really think this will be the, the most fruitful and life-giving approach, um, not only for our leaders at Liberty, but also for every single one of us that, that considers Liberty Church their home. Uh, so this would not be at all in any way an abandonment uh, of the good pursuits that we've really uh, endeavored to chase after these last five years of doing home groups. Uh, instead, the best we can discern it, this is really just the faithful path to what we hope would be more uh, long-term fruitfulness for us. So a couple practical things that that means. Um, first, if you have been in a home group, uh, you may have built or begun to build some really life-giving and formative relationships. Uh, please keep pursuing those relationships uh, during, during this home group sabbatical. The goal of this sabbatical is not to in any way blow up uh, what's been helpful or what's been effective. Uh, the goal is really to temporarily set aside the structure to provide rest and also to provide freedom so that we can pursue one another even in a more intentional way. So for, for those of you who are not home group leaders, which is the majority of you in the room, 
Uh, This actually will mean more work for you than less. And here's why. Uh, And I think we've actually experienced this some at Liberty over these past years as well. Um, We can presume upon structures. Just part of the nature of of how we work as humans. We can presume upon structures. Uh, So for most of us, you know, it's easy, it's nice when someone else does all the planning and all the work and all we need to do is show up. But that can give us the impression that we're really faithfully doing and pursuing those 55 uh, one another in commandments in the New Testament just because our name is on a roster somewhere. And that may or may not be true. We might actually be faithfully pursuing community. We might not be. If our name's on a roster, we can kind of assume, well, we're, we're doing that. We're covering it. So specifically, I'm calling all of us this fall to more ownership, uh, to take more ownership of, of not only your own relationship and your own formation in Christ, uh, but also for the formation of others in Christ, in, in community here. And you might say, as I say that, like, I, I have no idea how to do that. I have no idea where to start. Um, that is a good and honest answer, and that's a good and honest starting point. If you're willing to learn, then that's taking ownership for your formation in Christ and the formation of others in Christ. Let me also say this, because I'm feeling this. Um, for those of you who are new or, or who are newer uh, and who have been part of this church even for six months to a year and wanting to be in home groups as, they've re- as they were planning on relaunching this fall, um, let me apologize to you for the timing of this. Um, I'm feeling that for you especially. I hope that as I'm sharing this, you hear the heart behind uh, why we're doing this, and that really long-term, we think this is actually the way that that will serve and care for you better uh, than to try to push really hard and make things happen quickly this fall. We think actually in some ways that would be more detrimental than to take this sabbatical uh, and really care for you well over the long term. And if you know me at all, this won't be uh, a surprise to any of you. It, re- it takes, for me and my personality, a lot more faith to take a sabbatical uh, like this for home groups than to just keep pressing on and keep working. Uh, it's easier for me just to keep things moving and create these kind of structures and, and spaces in which we hope people would, would connect and, and grow. This takes more faith for me uh, to do this. So I am concerned that, that people will um, fall through the cracks. Uh, I am concerned that you know, connections and relationships and people being folded into community won't happen uh, as well this fall. That's, that's something that potentially could be the case. But I want to call us all to pursue one another relationally in the sabbatical in ways that will be truly good and, and life-giving for you and for others. Uh, whether you're new or whether you've been in uh, a home group since they've existed, here are a couple specific ways you can, you can do that. You can pursue being formed in Christ in community with others here. One, and I'm grateful for the timing of this, Abby just announced uh, women's Bible studies. For all the women in the room, that would be a great opportunity for you to pursue relationships that are also formative in Christ. They were incredibly helpful for the women that went through them last year. Uh, I would encourage all of you to be in one of those if you are up for that this year, all the women. On the men's side, as is probably not shocking to you, we're never as organized or or well-planned out as the women are on that front. But we still really value men connecting to study the Bible together. Email me. Uh, There's four groups that already exist right now. Uh, Happy to begin more of those if there's the interest for it. So email me, and we'll make that happen in the weeks to come. Liberty 101, uh, we do that every other month. The next one is actually this coming Sunday, September 17th. If you're newer, if you're less connected than you'd like to be, that's a great place for you to come to meet other people that are kind of in the same boat as you are. Uh, and would really, in addition to learning more about who we are as Liberty Church, hopefully provide you some opportunities to connect with people and begin relationships that happen outside of here on Sundays. 
a new thing that's going to start on October 1st, and you'll hear more about this in the weeks to come. Uh, we're going to begin on Sunday, October 1st at 9.30 a.m., a weekly coffee hour. Uh, so we'll provide good coffee uh, for you. You'll hear more about that. It's not going to be like the 100-cup urns of terrible coffee that, that maybe you associate with, with churches, if that's some of your background. In addition to good coffee, really the aim of that is to uh, just provide a weekly space for relationships and connections to happen, where maybe then you meet someone who's new uh, or you don't know, and you decide to go out to lunch after church that day. Uh, you decide to connect sometime that week. Just an opportunity for you to connect uh, with others. So if you've been at Liberty for a long time and you've like surveyed the landscape and gone, I know half the people here but not the other half, great place for you to come and to meet people who are newer. Same thing the other way around. If you're newer, great place to meet new people and people that have been here uh, for, for years. Um, there's no frequency, like you have to come every week. Come when you can. Uh, come with the, the desire to connect with people, to meet people, to build relationships that happen outside of, of Sundays. And the last thing I'll mention is um, Abby mentioned Liberty Connect. Uh, in Liberty Connect, there's a men's link group and a women's link group. If you don't know anything of what I'm talking about, uh, email the address on the back of your bulletin. We'll help get you connected to that. Uh, there's some great stuff happening on those groups as well. Uh, some of the, the moms of young kids in our church are connecting almost every week, or at least every other week, uh, for play dates. That's been going great. This Thursday night, there's an opportunity for men to gather and go to uh, a special screening of a movie here in Camp Hill together. Um, if you're not a mom of young kids, uh, or you can't make that schedule work, if you're a man that doesn't like movies, um, would encourage you just to show the initiative and put together opportunities that would be pretty good for you and see, see what happens uh, in, in this season. Uh, so that's the update. Feel free to bring questions to your home group leaders, to, to me in the days to come. Uh, I'm going to pray for us really quickly on that, uh, and we just ask you also to continue praying for us as we, as we navigate this, um, this endeavor to do community and discipleship relationships well. So let me pray for us. God, we, um, we do long to be formed in you, Jesus. We long to do that in relationships with one another. And we uh, acknowledge, we, we struggle to find the right approaches to do that. There, there is no perfect approach, we know that. At the same time, we want to be uh, as diligent as we can to be faithful to you. Uh, and so we pray for these coming months that during this sabbatical, you would um, give us great clarity and wisdom on how to do that together well as a church. We also pray during the sabbatical that you would give us a heart for one another and that even the, the absence of the structure of home groups would, would even lead to better connections, better relationship, better depth, better discipleship uh, than home groups have been able to, to create in these past years. Uh, we pray this would be a really life-giving and energizing and renewing season for us as a church. We pray we would welcome new people well, and we pray that we would uh, just continue uh, to, to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus in our relationships together this fall. And we pray all these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Uh, if you have Bibles, uh, we're going to be in the book of 1 Peter today, 1 Peter chapter 2. If you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles uh, that I mentioned just a moment ago, that's going to be page 1015, where you will find uh, today's text. We are worshipers. We're worshipers, and each and every moment of our lives uh, are devoted to the honor and praise of someone or something. Perhaps that thought is completely new to you this morning, in which case it really introduces an important paradigm shift. It's not that there are some of us who are worshipers and some of us who are not, the question is always not if we are a worshiper, but who or what we are worshiping. 
Because I know many of you and that many of you have backgrounds in the church, my guess, though, is that most of you have heard that before. That's not a new idea today. So let me press even more deeply this morning. Uh, Not only are you a worshiper every moment of your life, but whatever you worship is forming you and molding you every moment of your life. In 2008, uh, a professor at Westminster Seminary named Gregory Beale wrote a book called We Become What We Worship. The title really is is his thesis. And what he means is that worship is not only about who or what we devote ourselves to. Of course, that's worship. But that when we devote ourselves to someone or something, we become more and more conformed to the image of whatever it is that we're worshiping. And that's not just something that that Greg Beale made up. The Apostle Paul really says this very same thing in the book of Romans. Uh, Twice in the book of Romans, he uses this Greek word for image or representation. The first time he does that, it's in Romans 1, and he says that some people claiming to be wise became fools, and Paul says there, exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. He goes on to say, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. That's the first time. The second time is in Romans 8. He says that those who love God, those who are known by God, will be conformed more and more to the image of Jesus Christ. In other words, uh, because we are always worshipers, we are always being molded into one of these two things, either a distortion, a corruption, a perversion of creation, which just keeps descending this downward spiral that Paul spells out for us in Romans chapter 1, or more and more conformed into the image of Jesus himself. As Gregory Beale puts it, we're always being formed either into our ruin or to our restoration. And if that's true, which for me, I'm I'm convinced that it is, not only does it mean that every moment of our lives is significant, it also means that whenever Jesus' church gathers together for worship, what we do and how we do what we do matters. That we're not only worshiping together in that moment, which of course we are, but that we are being formed and conformed, hopefully, more and more into the image of that one true God we are worshiping. So this morning we're kicking off our fall series. Uh, Maybe you saw it on the cover of your bulletin this morning. It's called Rehearsing the Gospel, Becoming a Worshiping Community of Mercy. Uh, If you've ever been curious about our liturgy uh, at Liberty Church, then my hope is that this series will be helpful in explaining some of of why we do what we do here. But far beyond simply explaining things, I hope that this series causes all of us to step back and examine what is it that we are being formed into. Are we being, what, what are we becoming? Is maybe a better way to say that. Are we being conformed to the image of Jesus or have we let a competing narrative, a competing story, a competing devotion shape us into the image of something else. Because even with the best of intentions, we, we know in ourselves we are weak and fickle and forgetful people. And in that weakness, in that fickleness, in that forgetfulness, we're prone to be shaped by the narratives of our day, which are narratives of narcissism and novelty, narratives of pragmatism and programs, narratives of entertainment and emptiness. 
But from their earliest days, Christians have always been those who resist the competing narratives of their day. And they are those who definitively, and even at times defiantly, proclaim that this world belongs to God, that he gets to narrate the story of the world. And this is why from the earliest days, the church has gathered to rehearse the gospel, to narrate, to celebrate the good news of the finished work of Jesus, to both remember God's past and to anticipate God's future, so that we might be increasingly formed into this worshiping community of mercy. And 1 Peter 2 provides what I would say is a really concise yet robust picture of this. So we're going to kick off the series looking at the words of the Apostle Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9-12. through 12. I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is God's word. Pray with me. God of mercy, you promised never to break your covenant with us. Amid all the changing words of our generation, speak your eternal word that does not change. Enable us to respond to your gracious promises with faithful and obedient lives. We pray this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So these few verses, it's a short text, but they give us a really good framework for what a worshiping community of mercy looks like. So we'll break that down, and we'll look at it in three different parts, which, if you haven't figured this out already, not coincidentally also match up with the core values of our church, worship, community, and mercy. Uh, So we'll talk about each of those uh, this morning. First is worship. Uh, Worship is such a a big word and has such a a huge scope of meaning that it can be overwhelming to think about worship and what it is. Uh, There's gathered worship, what we're doing here together this morning. There's personal rhythms of worship, the time that you spend reading scripture, the time that you spend in prayer or in other various spiritual disciplines. There's the reality that all of life is worship. And so as Christians, our deepest desire is that all of our lives be devoted to the praise and the honor of Jesus Christ. When the church gathers, we're kind of focusing in a little bit on that today. When the church gathers, what's the purpose of worship? Uh, Should it be for the building up of those who are already Christians? Should it be uh, to share the gospel with those who are not yet Christians? Should it be uh, primarily educational, as has often been thought and practiced in the West that's been shaped by enlightenment? Should it be instead more uh, an experience, as awakenings and revivals in the charismatic movement have articulated? Should it be primarily about our hearts, or about our heads, or about our hands, or is there really any way to separate all of those things? Should worship be rooted in tradition? And if so, which tradition? And if which tradition, how much of that tradition? How free are we to cut tether from the anchors of the past and move into something new and different? All of these uh, are really important and really worthwhile questions, and I'll barely scratch the surface this morning. Because instead of starting with those questions, 1 Peter 2 really helps us establish a foundation from which we can root our answers in the very word of God. 
So here's what we have in this text. Worship, Peter says, verse 9, it's the people of God proclaiming the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. That is a packed statement in verse 9. So although it is done in relationships with other people and around and among other people, worship is directed toward God. And though worship originates in the heart, Peter says, it works its way outward to a proclamation. And though a life of worship entails uh, the hardships, the trials, the suffering of this life, worship proclaims the excellencies, the greatness, the worthiness of God. And as Peter spells out here too, it means there's a content to our worship, namely the work that God has done and the work that God is doing and the work that God will do in the world. This summer, I read a book called Ancient Future Worship uh, by a man named Robert Weber. Uh, phenomenal book. It's been incredibly helpful to me uh, and one that you'll probably hear me quote from not only today but, but throughout this series this fall. Uh, we actually have a few copies available for purchase at the welcome desk, and if we run out of those, happy to order more. I would encourage you to check that out if it piques your interest. In Ancient Future Worship, one of the things that Robert Weber does is propose a succinct definition of worship itself. And he puts it this way. He says, worship does God's story. Worship does God's story. And he goes on to explain it saying this. What does it mean to say worship does God's story? It is this. Worship proclaims, enacts, and sings God's story. Worship is not a program, nor is worship about me. Worship is a narrative, God's narrative of the world from its beginning to its end. And it's this narrative, it's this rehearsal of the gospel that really has shaped the way that we worship as Liberty Church and the way we have worshiped for the five and a half years we've been gathering each and every Sunday. Uh, we sing, uh, we pray, we recite creeds, we confess, we engage in silence, we pass the peace, we listen to the word preached, we come to this table, all as genuine proclamation of the excellencies of God, but also desiring to be formed more and more as worshipers of that God, to both remember God's work in the past and to anticipate God's future for the world. And notice here how in 1 Peter 2, the apostle draws our attention to both the past and the future. He says, We were called, past tense, out of darkness and into light. Once we were not a people, once we had not received mercy. That's all past tense. Now we have received mercy. Now we are, present tense, God's people. And then in verse 12, he anticipates the future. He anticipates the day that, that the Gentiles, those who are currently separated from Christ, will glorify God on the day of visitation, on the day that Jesus comes again. So the church must proclaim and must enact God's narrative from its beginning to its end, as Weber says. But instead, what's often more evident among different tribes of, of Christianity is that we tend to do one of those well to the neglect of the other. So liberal Christians or liberal Christianity, they tend to anticipate the future well without really remembering the past. Uh, liberal folks will often refer to themselves as progressive. That's a telling identifier because progressive means you're progressing, charging forward into the future. And so it's all about, in liberal Christianity, shaping the world in light of the coming kingdom of God. But what's often true in those tribes or those circles is that there's there tends to be a downplaying or a neglect of the essential reality that, that Jesus has already come. That the course of history is actually already set. 
and that we only have the right to anticipate the future as it's been designed and been determined by God. So practically, how that works itself out, uh, liberal Christianity tends to focus more on social action uh, and justice and mercy in the world while paying way too little attention to the once-for-all redemption that's purchased through the work of Christ. And so it becomes about justice and reconciliation over and against conversion. On the other hand, conservative Christianity, conservative Christians tend to remember the past well, but they really struggle to anticipate the future. Conservative Christians root their understanding of Christianity in what Jesus has accomplished, which is absolutely right. But they almost always pay too little attention to the present and coming kingdom of God, to the future that is being ushered in through that finished work of Christ. And conservative Christians tend to struggle deeply to step wholeheartedly into the active role they've been given as Jesus reconciles the world to himself. So it becomes about conversion over and against justice and reconciliation. So do you see why all of this is so important? We become what we worship. Or as it's also been said, show me how you worship and I will show you what you believe. That you have been, all of us in the room, and you are being formed into the image of someone or something. And even within this broader umbrella of Christianity, you have been and are being formed through the way that you worship. So as a church, we we must be diligent to be faithful to the full scope of the story of God his story of the world from its beginning to its end, and to proclaim his excellencies each and every time we gather. Second, let's talk about community. Gathered worship, uh, and liturgy in particular, invites us into community. Liturgy just means work of the people. That's what that word means, the work of the people. And this community picture is all over this text in 1 Peter 2. Peter is not talking about a collection of individuals here. He's using plural use. He's using plural pictures, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and perhaps most directly, a people for God's own possession. He says, once you were not a people, now you are God's people. So God has created a people for himself. Though though personal rhythms of worship are essential to our communion with Christ, It's the strongest of contradictions to be an isolated or individualistic worshiper of God. It's the strongest contradiction possible to be an isolated or individualistic worshiper of God. And this is where getting back to the the cultural and historical context of the author and the setting and the original audience really helps and is really important. Because Western thought, the the way that you and I think by default, starts at the individual level. So community, according to the way that most of us naturally think, it's just a collection of individuals. And as a collection of individuals, they each selectively choose, I'll engage in that, but I really won't engage in that. I'll do this, I won't do that. And none of that really matters because the individual's at the center. But in Eastern thought, it's the other way around. It's the community that's at the center. The family or the tribe is the primary and central thing through which individuals gain their identity. And that's the way that the writers of the New Testament talk about the church. It's with that Eastern mind, not our Western mind. So it's the people of God, not individuals of God who gather to create a community. Individuals, as worshipers of God, have their identity because they are part of the collective people of God. So let that challenge you today and as we go through this series. Let that challenge you because as a product of the West in general— as a product of America for most of us in particular, 
This will grate against the competing narratives of our culture. Those competing narratives are always at work, consciously or subconsciously. They're they're present in the books you read, in the movies you watch, in the media you consume. They're present in our educational systems. They're present in the conversations you have casually over coffee with friends and family members. And they threaten, because we're worshipers every single moment of our lives, they threaten to form us in a false narrative of the world. One example, again, from Robert Weber, he says this. A dominant error of some Christians is to say, I must bring God into my story. The ancient understanding is that God joins the story of humanity, speaking about the incarnation of Jesus in the world. God joins the story of humanity to take us into his story. And Robert Weber says, there's a world of difference. One is narcissistic. The other is God-oriented. It will change your entire spiritual life when you realize that your life is joined to God's story. Another example is our, our cultural obsession with novelty. Our cultural obsession with novelty. And individualism gives people, gives churches even, the license to reinvent the church over and over again. Some of you I know have, have been part of this and experienced this. It's all over the place in our culture where, where the title of pastor can be traded out for visionary architect or other kinds of titles like that. Like, what does that even mean? And where church planters will sometimes say silly things like, we're a church for people who hate the church. I had a, a person tell me that about himself and about his church recently. And it sounds cool. I mean, it sounds cool. I'll admit that. And, and even better than that, the heart of it is good. It's to provide an, an environment, a place for people who feel wounded or feel like the church isn't safe. The heart is good, but it's incredibly short-sighted. If a founding principle of your church is a rejection of the church, then don't be surprised, don't be frustrated when people turn around and reject your approach to it at some point too. So in all of that, I say that to to say, don't be content to settle for a Christian-ish narrative. Don't start with a false narrative like individualism or novelty and try to co-opt that or Christianize that. Start really with the narrative of God himself that God has established a people for himself, and that through the work of Christ, you are caught up into the story of God. Be formed in that understanding of the world. That is the story of God. And if it's going to form us into a genuine community, gathered worship can, can never be an individual, passive kind of experience. It really must be, for all of us, participatory action in this shared identity we have as the people of God. And that participatory action in gathered worship is then meant to work its way out into the other ways we carry ourselves in the Christian life. So, for instance, based on the announcement I gave just a few minutes ago, I really hope, and I have some confidence this will be the case, at least for some, that this home group sabbatical will lead to a deeper and better expression of being a community of Christians. Uh, though, Though I think that structures are necessary and that they're helpful, they can also, like I said before, give us the impression that as long as our name is on a roster, we're being faithful when, when maybe we are and maybe we're not. So taking a sabbatical really for home groups is not an abandonment of a call to be part of a community and part of the people of God. It's actually a doubling down on that commitment with an acknowledgement that we haven't gotten there yet, but the hope that by the grace of God we'll press on and we'll more and more faithfully image that in the days to come. Lastly, let's talk about Mercy. Not only are we formed as worshipers, not only are we formed into a worshiping community 
or a community of worshipers, but we are formed into a worshiping community of mercy. To quote Robert Weber one final time, in this world, he says, there is always a witness to the restoration of the world, and you should be able to find it in the worship of the church. So if we are, as a community, rehearsing the gospel and really rehearsing the whole gospel, gathered worship will propel us to lives, lives and lifestyles of mercy. The rehearsal of both what God has done in the past, the mercy that we have received as his people, and what God will do, his ongoing, redemptive, merciful mission in the world, that, as we rehearse that together, will form in us more and more gospel-shaped lives that are increasingly equipped to participate in that redemptive, merciful work that God is doing in the world. So consider what Peter says here in verses 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter here establishes a critical link between lives that are holy and lives that are merciful. Did you hear that as we read it? Abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Put sin to death in your life. And... Keep your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. Let them see your good deeds. This link uh, between holiness and mercy is a link that, from my observations, is at best undervalued and sometimes completely neglected. But it's really central, and I hope we see this today and through this series, it's really central to being formed into people of mercy. Why? Because these are not separate pursuits. These are not separate formations. So it's not that liberal Christians are the merciful Christians and conservative Christians are the holy Christians and they all balance each other out in some kind of cosmic math equation. right? You are either being formed simultaneously in holiness and in mercy or you are being formed in a story that is not the story of God. Merciful lives are holy lives. It's why people like William Wilberforce wasn't just the man who fought for abolition of the slave trade. He was also the man that uncompromisingly devoted the first hour of each day to communion with God. Because if if we're going to take on an entrenched false narrative in our culture, for example, that some human beings are less valuable than other human beings, if you're going to proclaim the mercy of God in that way, then you must be formed in the whole story of God and the holiness of life with God. So holy lives are really what display the full scope of the story of God from its beginning to its end. They proclaim what God has done in the past, that he created the world in perfection, and then when sin fractured and corrupted everything, that he cleansed and purified a holy nation, as Peter says, for himself. They also proclaim the future of God, the future of God where sin is completely eradicated and we enjoy the fullness of the holiness of God forever. So as Peter says here in verse 12, the moral and ethical lives of God's people, they point to the return of Christ. They point to the consummation of God's story. And holiness is God's future for the world. So if in this life we attempt to do an end run around holiness in the name of showing mercy, that means we have been formed, and not only that, we are forming others in a false narrative of the world. Merciful lives are holy lives. Holy lives are merciful lives. 
As we are formed in Christ, we abstain from passions of the flesh. We conduct ourselves honorably. We let the world see our good deeds. And all of that collectively serve as a testament to the holy mercy of God and his ongoing work of reconciling the world to himself. We become what we worship. So church, worship the one true God. Don't start with a false and corrupted narrative and try to import the gospel into it. Start with the story of God from its beginning to its end and be shaped by the entirety of that story. Right? This world belongs to God. It is his world to narrate. How you worship, how you have worshiped, how you will worship will shape and form you. So consider how you have been and how you are being formed. Consider what it is that we do each week when we gather. Remember the work of God in the past that God has created, that sin has corrupted, but that Jesus has redeemed. And anticipate the work of God in the future, that he will reconcile the world to himself in Christ, that he is making all things new. May our worship always for Liberty Church and for each of us and as a community, may our worship always be a rehearsal of the gospel and may that rehearsal of the gospel form us ever more into a worshiping community of mercy. Amen. Amen. Let me pray. Jesus, we come and we confess that we are prone to adopt a false narrative of the world and try to Christianize it. And I pray this morning that you would open our eyes to where that might be true for us. I pray you would open our eyes to your story, whether it's for the first time or for the thousandth time, that we would be renewed in the story that you have written from eternity to eternity. And I pray that we'd be shaped by that, formed by that, that you would make us into a faithful, merciful, holy, worshiping community. Pray that this fall would be an opportunity for us to step back and do that. I pray we'd serve and love and care for one another well in that, in that pursuit. And I pray we would do the same to the world. I pray that we would be those as a community that people see us and see our good deeds and see the story of God at work and forming us and that they want to participate in that same formation. Do that powerful work in us. Do that powerful work through us. I pray this in your name. Amen.